new series of Asian Research Stories brought to you by the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. Uh, whether you're joining us live um, via Zoom, listening to the podcast or watching the video recording, um, I'm thrilled that you can join us um, for this exciting new series. For those of you who don't um, know me, my name is Renee Jeffrey and I'm a Professor of International Relations in the Griffith Asia Institute. Over the coming weeks and months, I'll be introducing and profiling some of the amazing research that our members, colleagues and friends are conducting in Asia and Pacific. Together we're going to be telling a series of stories um, that delve into our most recent research findings and uncover what motivates our researchers' work, uh, what draws them to focus their research on the Asia Pacific, how the development of their careers has led them to become Asian researchers um, and how they go about conducting research in the region. We're going to be launching um, and promoting a series of exciting new books and major reports that our members have published. We're going to meet some of our great PhD students, discuss our ongoing and future research projects and talk about the everyday reality of conducting research in and about Asia. Together, we want to highlight the contributions that our researchers are making to understanding our region and find out a bit more about what it is about Asia in the Pacific that intrigues, inspires and excites us. So for those of you who are watching or joining us live via Zoom today, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions towards the end of the session. Please use the chat function to ask questions. Um, and remember to please keep your questions short and to the point. This new online um, environment that we live in really encourage us, encourages us to be really direct in our um, formulation of questions. For those who are listening to the recording, we really hope that you enjoy the conversation. Please also feel free to join in on the conversation um, on Twitter via the Researching Asia Stories hashtag. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Caitlin Byrne and her story, Taking the Long Road, a research journey toward the Asia Pacific today. Caitlin is the extremely energetic director of the Griffith Asia Institute. Um, she's also a faculty fellow at the University of Southern California Center for Public Diplomacy. Caitlin joined Griffith University as the Director of GAI in 2017, um, having previously held an academic post at Bond University. Before turning to academia, however, Caitlin pursued an interesting and varied career across a range of government, business and community sectors. Her research primarily focuses on Australian diplomacy, in particular Australia's diplomatic engagement in the Asian Pacific. She has particular interests in the areas of leadership, soft power, public diplomacy, um, and including the roles of education, sport, and culture in diplomatic engagement. So welcome, Caitlin. Thanks, Renee. It's really great to be here and fantastic. Can I say before we even start talking, um, what a great initiative this is. I'm so pleased you're leading it and I hope we get to hear your story along the way too. <laughs> well, yes, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> So what I'd like to do, um, before we talk about your current research, is talk a little bit about your career because um, I think it's fair to say um, that your career has not followed that traditional you know, undergraduate to postgraduate to academic job trajectory. Um, I think everyone will find out when they hear my story that your career story is a much more interesting one than mine. <laughs> um, so your first degree was in law 
Yes. Um, and when you finished, um, you went and got a job with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. What made you apply to DFAT? Well, it's funny, Renee. I think the two words that I think of when I think about my career, two words that immediately come to mind are accidental and eclectic. Um, so, and and maybe that goes towards this theme of taking the long road. I, I think you know, I've, I, my trajectory has never been a linear one, and it's never always been clear to me either um, where I'm heading. But Actually, I studied law, and, and when I studied law, uh, I, I did an international relations major in my law degree, and I was in um, a really interesting position where I was not very good at the law subjects, but I was really good at the international relations subjects. So I knew I never actually wanted to practice law, um, but that somehow I wanted to work in an international space and in and that kind of domain. And actually, before joining DFAT, I had a really fantastic opportunity to work for Senator Claiborne Pell, who was a Democrat in the US Senate, a Democrat from Rhode Island. Um, and I went in and worked in his office in the Capitol. And at that time, he was the Foreign Relations Chairperson, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairperson. Um, so I had this really amazing experience working in Washington, D.C., I mean, I did a, don't get me wrong, I did a lot of envelope stuffing, I folded a lot of letters, um, I did a little bit of research on constituent issues, but it was just being in the environment where people are making decisions about policy. And at that stage, you know, we're talking very early 90s about America's position in the world. And I think that experience, you know, led me to then apply to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade as a lawyer where I worked in international law and um, learned an enormous amount working across the treaties area, international humanitarian uh, law, as well as domestic and admin law as it applies to diplomats in Australia. So that's really where it all began. Wow, okay. So you start a job um, at DFAT and you spend several years there and then you took a posting to Mexico. Now, that's not an obvious choice. No. What drove that? Was that one of those ones where they said, look, here are your options, and you thought, well, of the options they've given me, okay, that's that's probably the most palatable one? Or was there something that actually made you think, I really want to go um, and work in the embassy in Mexico? Well, uh, no. Um, <laughs> and this is the brilliant thing. You know, I would inc I know so many of our students, particularly in the international relations and political science area, so many students are keen to join DFAT and I totally endorse it in terms of career options. For people like me who probably thrive on change and, and love a range of options, it's a really great uh, career because you get a lot of different options. So I'd been in the legal office for a couple of years. Um, the posting round came out and you can apply for a number of different and rank your different choices. My first choice was actually Cambodia. I think I, I think my first four choices were all in Southeast Asia and Mexico was actually number five. Uh, I ended up with my fifth option and uh, newly married, my husband and I traveled off to Mexico City. Um, actually looking back, you know, spending time in Mexico was actually probably ultimately quite a good primer for coming back and spending more time in our region. 
um, it has a wonderful kind of vibrancy to the culture. It's really diverse. The people are just so, so incredibly generous and hospitable, but it's not without its challenges at every level. Um, so we spent a couple of years in Mexico, absolutely loved it. I would, and a real highlight actually in the career. So then what, what prompted you to take um, a more academic route from that point? So you know, you've had this really exciting opportunity and been able to be sort of you know, out there in the world, um, but then you decided to do a PhD. So what was, what was the driving force behind that decision? <laughs> Well, it actually came much later. So between Mexico, I spent time here in Brisbane with the um, Brisbane Park, Queensland Passports Office. I ran that for a few years. I then went into the private sector. Honestly, I did not think, I thought academia was as far away from anything I could do. Um, one of the things I learned through the experience in Mexico, I was the consul in the embassy there. I seem to be pretty good at solving problems on the ground. And we had a lot of consular issues that required us to think really creatively and be very practical and think on our feet. Um, whether it was dealing with people who had been detained and were in, in jail unexpectedly, um, we did have some, some really sad cases of, of people dying through their travels um, and having to, to find ways of bringing them back to Australia. Um, so these were all really practical things. So, so I, I certainly didn't anticipate ever going into academia. It was some years later, um, after our fourth baby, and maybe I was just used to spending time being up late at night. And my our, our fourth child was sleeping through, and I was still getting up and looking for things to do. So research became, you know, research suddenly was interesting to me, and I had a bit of time to start thinking about it. I actually started my PhD when we were living in rural Australia uh, in a little town outside Mildura. Um, for anyone who is familiar with North northwestern uh, Victoria. And it was at the time when the Australian Senate had just started an inquiry into the nature and conduct of Australia's public diplomacy. This was really interesting to me because as a diplomat, we hadn't really we hadn't really deeply engaged in the idea or the concept or the practice of public diplomacy. And in so many ways, it's, it relates to the way that Australia presents itself. Firstly, conceives of itself and then represents itself to the rest of the world. And so I was really fascinated to see how this development, how these conversations around public diplomacy might actually inform practice. Wow. And so was it um, just a natural... Um a natural connection to focus then primarily on the Asia Pacific when you started to do that research, um, to go back to what you'd originally sort of wanted to do as a diplomat? Yeah, I think it, it, it became um, apparent to me actually through my early, uh, my early dealings with the Griffith Asia Institute. So when I was starting, I actually started my PhD, but at the same time I had a full-time job. I was um, back in Queensland implementing new adoption laws for Queensland state government. And um, my husband was at home with our four kids. The youngest was in kindy. And he, he said to me, if you want to do your PhD, now's the time, because he was really focused on the kids. And so I guess at that stage, I threw myself between work and PhD. And an opportunity came up through the Griffith Asia Institute to travel to China as part of the Asia 
at, at that stage, it was the Emerging Leaders Dialogue. It's now our Asia Future Fellows Dialogue. And I went to China for the first time at the age of 38 in 2009. I had never thought, you know, I'd really thought because I'd spent time in Europe, the US, Mexico, I had missed that opportunity, you know, that, that seemed to come for many people to develop their Asia expertise. And in some ways, and I think this was a real, this was a, a I've had a light bulb moment since this. I thought, you know, you had to be a specialist in Asian studies or language to really engage in Asia. And it was the trip that I took through Griffith Asia Institute to China, 2009, that totally turned my thinking around um, and actually really set me on a, on a very different trajectory into academia. Um, and so I went into teaching diplomacy at, at, initially at Bond, but also in Asia. And I took any opportunity I could to spend time in the region. Well, that's fascinating just how sort of you know, fortuitous it's been, you know, being invited to go along with something and how those sorts of, yeah, those sorts of really sort of lucky coincidences can really shape um, how a career goes. But in terms of conducting your research, I'm really, really interested in how your sort of past and present professional experience shapes how you do research in the region. Um, look, it seems to me that you have this really interesting overlap going on um, between sort of being a researcher and a practitioner. And that's sort of a past and present thing. Um, you studied diplomacy, but you've also worked for DFAT. We know that your current role um, has a huge amount of Asian engagement mm -hmm. um, as, as part of it, that you amass a gazillion frequent flyer points traveling all over the region, um, building your person-to-person -person relationships, promoting education, doing quite a lot of actual diplomatic work. So in a sense, you're talking to people about diplomacy, you're doing public diplomacy, and you're researching it all, all mm. at the same time. So what I'm really interested in knowing is how does that intersection between professional practice um, and research inform how you go about researching these sorts of topics? I don't know. I've got a great answer for this, and uh, because I think I'm still working that out in a way, but I am really interested in, and and have discovered how interested I am in that, uh, you know, that nexus between theoretical knowledge uh, and practice. And I guess underpinning that is an interest in the way that individuals experience the world. So uh, I think that's probably been at, at the core of how I've started to shape my own research methods. And, you know, I do consider myself to be more a practitioner than a researcher. And, and what I love about being part of the Institute is we have such great researchers who can pull me up on the method side of things. And, and, and I learn so much from having that opportunity to talk with people. I think ultimately, I am really interested in narratives and, and a kind of narrative inquiry approach. So really understanding through individual and collective stories how, um, how people experience the world, how, how their practice might be informed by their experiences of the world, and then how do we translate that to either inform broader policy or systemic frameworks or reveal the vulnerabilities in them. Um, so, so I think I think at the end of the day, and I think this is always a trick, you know, a tricky thing for academics. And I, again, I'd be really interested in the stories that come through this series. I think there's always a challenge in in finding your groove, your research groove, 
and then finding your voice. And I think for me, it's been around narrative and bringing a diversity of voice into my voice. So is that um, in part been about the fact that you get to go to so many places and you spend so much time talking to such a huge range of people from across the region and about then having this sort of interwoven set of stories about how people understand themselves and how they interact and that sort of thing. So it's very much sort of driven by the fact that you have these opportunities. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, going back to my my mis misperception that for some reason Asia was off limits to me because I didn't have that expertise, I think that's a real lesson that I'd like to kind of share with other people that, that it is so accessible and it's really by understanding stories. And I, I probably also had this moment living in Mildura, I was spent a fair bit of time working in community development and one of the projects we worked on was building an early learning centre for a vulnerable community um, and we were working really closely with a primary school, Mildura Primary School, that has very high Indigenous enrolment rate and we're working really closely with Indigenous families. And one of the, the real key to the success of this, this particular project was when we were able to tap into the stories that gave meaning to this community. So, you know, we often think in, in my experience with my kids was relying on very traditional fairy tales and, and um, riddles and things like that. What, what we found worked in this space was getting the stories of the region, collecting emu eggs from along the banks of the Murray River, for example. Oh, your screen's falling. <laughs> My banner's still up. I hope Never you mind. can see that. Um, oh, well done. <laughs> I love the screen idea, though, Renee. My kids are still traumatised, well, not traumatised, but my kids are all coming in and saying, why do we have Rupavasia Institute in our house? Um, but just going back to this idea of stories is, yeah. I think, what actually, you know, it means that I don't go into anything in the region with a presupposed idea of, of how people live and experience their world, but we can actually find that out and we can make that accessible to others. Yeah, okay. I mean, look, that provides us with a really, really interesting um, link to the current research that you've been engaging in um, that's been looking at the role of the arts and cultural sectors in leadership um, in the Asia Pacific. And I know that you've been taking that narrative um, approach um, in looking at you know, the development of leadership in that, in that area and what we can learn from leadership in culture and the arts sort of more broadly. Um, and I think that's an absolutely fascinating project. And how did how did that come about? How did you start doing that? <laughs> Other than, I mean, there are lots of obvious, easy answers to say why why wouldn't you, if you're travelling around Asia, yeah. want to be engaged in, in art and and culture? But but what drove the specific research part of of this project? Well, it actually came out of a collaboration with a colleague, Ruth Berrison, also from Griffith. And Ruth and I, you know, have a, a Ruth sits in the arts um, space, really in culture, and me on the diplomacy side. And we've been having these very, you know, robust conversations about the role of culture in the way that Australia, well, in the way that nations engage with each other. Um, and 
we also were having a conversation with the Asia Europe Foundation in um, based in Singapore, and the the a project came forward to do some cultural mapping of Southeast Asia to align with ASEAN's fiftieth anniversary. Um, and Ruth and I thought that would be a really interesting project, and we we started talking with participants from each of the, the ten member states of ASEAN. Um, we had arts practitioners identified across across Southeast Asia, and we began with a workshop. Would you believe in Malta on the sidelines of the World Summit of Arts and Culture? It was a couple of years ago now, and through this workshop, we got people to talk about their own journey as an arts practitioner in their community, in their sector, in their nation, and within this regional ASEAN architecture. And what we discovered was that this was not a going to be a traditional mapping exercise. You know, you can't, and I think Megan Dargle talks about this in a beautiful um, paper she's done on narrative in international relations, where people's stories, we sometimes lose the vibrancy of their backstories, of their narratives, when we try and pin data on points like a, a graph. Mm. So... We decided that we wanted to really unravel through their individual narratives over a period of time. And we worked with these participants over a couple of years, both um, meeting up with them. We'd hold workshops within the region and they also came to Brisbane um, to individual stories as arts practitioners. And then to, to try and understand what that collective narrative was telling us about arts practice in the region. And we do have a lot to learn from arts practitioners in terms of leadership and in, in the way that the arts offers us a vehicle to, to give and gain meaning from our world. But we also identified some points of deficiency where arts practitioners themselves, um, you know, sometimes are removed from the table. They're not at, a, at the decision-making tables, for example. So bringing arts I've had the benefit of reading um, a draft of that, which I thoroughly, um, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. And I think there were also some really um, interesting sort of broader themes that you bring out um, in that piece. And one of them that's really grabbed my attention is something that I've been thinking about and writing about for for quite some time and that's this idea of what a tradition might be um, and in the piece you talk about this um, tension that exists um, on the one hand between you know the old sort of past cultural and artistic traditions um, and the and the real um, need there is to preserve and respect those traditions as part of, of cultures and identities and so on but on the other hand this idea that like all traditions cultural and artistic traditions in the region are, you know, they're, they're evolving. They're not static. Yeah. These are things that um, are responding to what's going on around them. They're responding to all sorts of, you know, different pressures and commenting on contemporary life. And so you've got that tension between preservation and innovation. And it almost, it's almost a metaphor for so many things that we look at when we study um, Asia and the Pacific. Um, so what I'm really keen to know is in, in this dynamic, how, how do you see this playing out um, in terms of leadership? Mm. How does that old, new, you know, preservation, innovation set of relationships work? 
Oh, it's so interesting. And and what I found fascinating through these narratives was um, with our participants, they hadn't met before. They hadn't actually spent a great deal of time travelling to each other's nations. They were very well um well-educated, well-informed, fabulously travelled people, having spent time in New York, in Rio, in Paris, you know, on different forms of scholarships, and yet had never really spent time in each other's nations within Southeast Asia. So having them explore some of these themes around the table was fascinating to watch their own reactions to each other. And this idea of the tension that sits between tradition uh, and preservation and innovation was a common, was a really common tension. So our hip hop dancer from Laos, you know, I mean, he was pushing the boundaries of innovation in, and really determined that Laos should be seen, for example, in some of the major ASEAN Southeast Asian hip hop competitions. Yeah. But, but that that was that was creating some tensions for him at home as well. Um, yep. A Cambodian participant also, um, you know, focused on dance, for example, and, and Cambodia in particular, where there's a real sensitivity to the prevent to the preservation of history and tradition and culture and the arts. Um, having for the, for him having to speak to audiences in his community older, you know, his parents' generation um, about the importance of moving forward. I, and this is where I think the arts presents a really important vehicle because it allows us to find ways of representing tradition and representing the past in the present in ways that enables innovation. So it's not dismissing, it's not cutting it off, um, but it's actually finding ways to put it forward as well. And it goes into that idea of, you know, in, our, in, in so many traditions in our part of the world, time is circular. It's, it, that linear trajectory doesn't really exist and, and past, present and future exist in the same moment. Great. Um, look, I'm going to uh, remind everybody who's uh, listening live that um, we have the chat function open and that if you have any um, any questions um, for Caitlin to please um, post them on there because I can um, start opening the floor um, for questions in a moment. Um, but while people are thinking and um, typing away, I'd just like to finish by asking you, well, what's next? What's the, the next great sort of um, you know, research puzzle um, or you know, topic that you're you know, thinking of attacking um, in the region? Really interested in um, spending more time in Southeast Asia. And, what, you know, you did mention travel before. Um, uh, the past couple of months, what I have to say is how great it's been for us to to really become adept at using technology, um, and I've actually really loved being at home and spending time with the family and knowing what's in the kitchen cupboard. Which often, you know, <laughs> my previous travel schedule meant that I I was so out of the loop with the shopping and and what was going on at home. And I feel like that's been really good to come come back to. But you know, I feel the pull of getting back into Southeast Asia. Uh, and connecting with people and really understanding. I mean, I think uh, one of the things we've been talking about quite a bit at Wickliffe is, is the importance of listening and listening to, oh, there goes the screen again. <laughs> I love this live. I love live streaming. Um, no worries. Somebody <laughs> next door will get out a jackhammer in a minute. It will be great. The dog will start here as well. Don't worry. 
um, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to, to I think there's, I think we still need to understand more about how the region sees us and how Australia, you know, we continue to talk about how important the Asia-Pacific region or the Indo-Pacific region is for us. Uh, I'd like to spend more time listening to how the region sees us and sees the kind of contribution that Australian diplomacy, traditional and public, can make to the way we as a region kind of face some, face up to some of the big challenges ahead. So I've got a um, really interesting question here um, from Tess Newton-Kane. Um, so she's asking, where are the strengths and weaknesses in Australia's offering uh, when it comes to sharing cultural and narratives as part of our diplomatic engagement in Southeast Asia? Oh, yeah. what a big question, Tess. And I can't see you, but so great that you're here in the background. And I know this is something, um, you know, that you've been thinking about, particularly with the Pacific. So it's it's a really important question, not just for Southeast Asia, but also about Australia's engagement in the Pacific. And I think one of the things I think it, that's really interesting is how much Australia has changed over the last couple of decades and how I don't know I don't know if we represent the diversity of us today um, to the rest of the world all that well. I think sometimes we still fall back on familiar tropes and stereotypes ourselves. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity for artistic and, and cultural collaboration and exchange and um, and of course, you know, Australia's Indigenous cultures and heritage are absolutely of interest around the world. Um, and, and, and they do form a significant part of Australia's cultural diplomacy. I'd really love to see us as a nation absolutely value that and, and place a, a greater recognition on the importance of Indigenous cultures, voices, and I think, and this is probably a point I've, I've been rabbiting on about in, on Twitter um, with my hashtag soft power for a while, but ultimately, so, you know, my, the way I see soft power and Australia's potential soft power is that it starts at home and it's all about the way we understand ourselves and we interact with each other at home and in the region. And I think we can do a better job of, of, on that. So Elise um, is asking, what's the future of public diplomacy for the region? Has the requirement to go digital um, changed things for diplomacy and public diplomacy in the future, do you think? Nice question, Elise. <laughs> uh, I think this is something we need to be writing about. Um, yeah, look, it's, again, a, a really big question. I think in this region, as we go into the digital sphere, one of the real challenges for public diplomacy is making sure we maintain the relational aspect of it, um, that we don't fall back on broadcast, um, you know, the Cold War models of, of public diplomacy that were much more aligned to, to propaganda um, and information push rather than kind of two-way dialogue or collaboration, um, where we come into a conversation open to, to others' perspectives rather than coming into a conversation with our own, you know, set way of seeing the world. So I think the digital dimension potentially creates some challenges for us and also, you know, against a background of increasing misinformation, disinformation, fake news, 
the, the core of, of successful public diplomacy or diplomatic engagement with people today really rests on authenticity and credibility and, and an opportunity for dialogue. So they're the kind of things we have to make sure we don't lose. Well, on that note, um, I think that is a, a fantastic sort of message, if you like, if we weren't planning to get to a message, but in oh. fitting with the idea of a long road um, and an unexpected journey to a particular end, I think um, that is a, a fantastic uh, way to end um, our seminar today. So I'd really like to thank um, everybody who has joined us online. Um, there's a whole lot of links and a really nice conversation going on in the chat function. Um, if you didn't want to pose a question um, to be answered live, um, certainly continue to um, chat um, using that function and follow the links. Um, people have put some great suggestions of articles um, and so on up there, which is fantastic to see. Um, but most of all, of course, I'd really like to thank you, Caitlin, um, for your time today and for telling us this really fascinating story of how you've come to be um, you're an Asia researcher, how you've come to be the director of the Griffith Asia Institute and to sort of demonstrate to everybody that the, you know, the the direct road, the you know, the standard path is not the only way um, of getting um, to where you are, that there are all sorts of twists and turns and that in many ways this makes for a much more sort of colourful um, and, and engaged career. So thank you very much. Thank you, Renee. Great to talk to you. And thanks for, again, thank you for thinking of this and putting these stories out there. It's fabulous. No problem. Um, and we'll see everybody next week. Um, next week we're going to be talking to uh, Dr Emma Palmer and launching her new book on um, international criminal law in Southeast Asia. Um, oh. It's really exciting. Um, the release date of that um, internationally has been uh, moved forward a bit, so we will be launching it um, for her online and through the podcast. So we'll see you all next week. Thanks. Fantastic. Bye -bye. Thank you. See you. Bye.